This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're joined by me, Sam, and Catherine Hurling, CEO and co-founder of Funding Exchange. Welcome, Catherine. Sam, thanks for having me. You're joining me here on a, well, it's a lovely evening. We've got the sun setting beautifully behind Paul, who doesn't get enough mentions, by the way. We should, we should talk about Paul a little bit more. He's the guy that makes all of this happen. I've been doing a little bit of research on your background. I'm looking forward to this a great deal. You've always been a small business owner, but at the same time, you've also had a bit more of an analytical past, a kind of the art and the science, which I'm looking forward to exploring a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, I live in two different worlds, and it's quite interesting to bring these two worlds together. On one hand, I inherited a dairy farm in the southeast of Ireland, and I've been running this farm for more than 20 years, actually. And as such, have really been in the shoes of a small business and have dealt with those partners who we today work with, large banks, for example, as a small business customer. And that has given me some really interesting insights into what it feels like if you're actually the customer and you're sitting in front of this big bank and you're dealing with the bank and what your expectations also are. And on the other hand, I've actually spent seven years working with Bain & Company in their financial services practice. And this was at a time that was particularly interesting after the financial crisis. And I had a fantastic opportunity to work with commercial banks across Europe and particularly help these banks actually understand how to rebuild not just their balance sheet, but actually also develop commercial propositions for small businesses that are viable both from a P&L, but also from a balance sheet perspective. And those two different parts of having been the customer, but actually also having sat with the executives has given us some of the ideas as to what we want to do with funding exchange. So as a result of these experiences, treating customers fairly is at the center of everything that we're doing. But at the same time, we recognize the challenges that banks have who do not have good digital processes and therefore have decided to build a business that is as digital as possible and thereby creates as much transparency in SME lending as possible. Wow, it's a unique blend. And part of the reason I love doing this podcast is to meet people exactly like you. The good news is I was actually in Ireland last night and I ate enough cheese, I think, to keep every dairy farm in business. <laughs> So Fantastic. I played, played my part. <laughs> I appreciate your support. <laughs> and also you spent seven years at Bain in, in one of the most exciting times. I've had the good fortune. I, was, I used to work for an investment bank and and then I moved into a, what I like to think is a more pioneering company that was focused on financial technology. We've had the great pleasure of working with some of the world's largest institutions in a time of total evolution, you know, customer empowerment, technology, new business models, regulation, forcing change. How has that helped you build funding exchange? And can you maybe tell us a little bit about the funding exchange model and and journey? Yeah, absolutely. Let me start with what funding exchange actually does. So funding exchange is, in essence, trying to revolutionize the brokerage model. And what we do is essentially necessary now because small businesses have so many more choices and options as to where to access finance. As a result of the financial crisis, we've seen a numerous 
alternative funding sources, challenger banks emerge in the SME lending space. And so today it's much harder to understand as a small business who's going to fund me. Prior to the financial crisis, it was essentially you go to your bank, your bank says yes or nay, and that's it. But today, actually, you're facing probably about 200 different sources of finance. And so we have built a digital platform that provides an impartial way of assessing who's going to give you which terms within three minutes, and then be able to seamlessly proceed with the one, two or three providers that you actually feel is providing you the best terms. So in essence, if you sum it up, we're essentially money supermarket for small business lending. And in fact, we are money supermarket. We are providing our solution as their business funding channel exclusively. And that is because we can guarantee that a business gets access to all of the funding solutions available to them. And that at each point, a customer is treated fairly. And this is really important to our partners. Well, firstly, congratulations. It's a great milestone that you guys have just achieved with your partnership with Money Supermarket. And really testament to the business you built and your product, always putting the customer first. Can you talk a bit maybe about the product? What kind of data points do you take in to provide the recommendations that you do? It's really interesting. When we started, there actually weren't very many data points available that you could access live. And this is part of the reason why banks have found SME lending so challenging. There isn't good live data that helps you make decisions. So we today are working with credit reference agencies, including Equifax and Experian, as well as Companies House, cloud accounting providers and others that provide us such a wealth of data that we're able to digitize underwriting models of our lenders and actually able to make decisions that are mirroring in almost all cases, the decisions that our working capital lenders are making. And that means what we've done is, in essence, broken down the underwriting process into three stages, eligibility, affordability, and risk-based pricing. And just in the eligibility stage, we're using 172 decision points and thousands of live data points to actually make accurate decisions. And that goes down to the level of detail where we're able to look at missed payments for different instruments for a single director or multiple directors. So it is not just at the level of does somebody have a CCJ, but have you been paying your business credit card or have you missed any of those payments in the recent past? And this level of accuracy is essentially what is allowing us to be very very different in the market. We're able to not just tell you who is going to lend to you, but we're going to give you accurate assessment of the amount of funding based on their affordability models, as well as the terms that are available as we hold the risk-based pricing models. It sounds quite logical that you go down this path of using data, but actually the hardest bit, the greatest challenge we've had is actually lenders working with us and trusting us with their underwriting models. Yeah. As you can imagine, that's the core IP of every lender. And so while we say we treat customers fairly, we've equally invested in actually building the trust with our lenders. And as a broker, you wouldn't be able to do this because a broker very often has their self-interest at heart and is maximizing the income per transaction. So we've very much moved away from that model and we're looking at ourselves more as a data analytics company that is actually the trusted party that's working between the lender and the SME and thereby gets access to underwriting models, data from customers, etc. So as the data aggregator or the fair broker or whatever you want to call yourself, 
you've positioned yourself uniquely. But this also wouldn't have been possible, I don't think, 10 years ago. I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, but the lenders have had a total shift in their attitude towards A, working with third parties, B, what their customers actually require, and C, the opportunities of the future provided by new business models and technologies. What do you think some of the most pivotal shifts have been that have forced the lenders into thinking differently? So I think if we look across the market, what has enabled us to progress with the model that we've built is actually the codification of underwriting models. Unlike personal finance, which is much simpler and much easier to automate, SME finance for the longest time hasn't been digitized. People have made decisions and and said, look, we need to look the business owner in the eyes. Oh, I have this relationship. I've known this guy for 20 years. And that is relationship-based underwriting. All of that is valid as well. We don't want to walk away from the fact that there's some underwriting that needs to happen based on these deep relationships. But particularly in the working capital space where we're looking at lending of sub-150K, a lot of it should be and can be automated as we find that more and more lenders are actually looking to use the data to assess affordability, assess the ability of a business and a business owner to repay a particular loan. So this move towards codifying underwriting is actually something that we feel to some extent we've helped move forward because we've actually given our lenders the instruments to codify these models. But we've also benefited from a trend that was already there. I love that, the codification of underwriting models. What's your view on on how open banking is going to enable, A, what you do, but B, what the lenders are doing? So this is probably now the next sea change that we're seeing happening. So yes, if you have underwriting models codified, you can digitize. But what's now happening is because we are now able to access data that has traditionally been only owned by banks and been accessible by banks. We believe that the fundamental change that this is bringing is that you have much more open competition. So suddenly the bank isn't the only one who can assess Mm. your current account data, but anyone can actually use that data to make credit assessments. And what is already happening that we're seeing in the industry is that the banks are starting to realize that the traditional way of competing is no longer valid Mm -hmm. by just keeping a customer hostage and saying, look, I know more about this customer than you, and therefore my underwriting is better. That no longer works. You have models like Funding Circle Ivoca coming into the market actually saying, well, we can offer a much better customer experience, competitive rates. And thereby what we're seeing is for the first time, small business customers actually have a choice. And the banks have taken a little while to recognize that this is real competition and that these guys are not just serving customers that they would not want to serve. And I think this is really something over the last six to eight months that has changed. The banks are for the first time recognizing that customers are voting with their feet and even customers that the banks would like to retain are actually choosing to go with other alternative providers because of the customer experience, because they can access funding much more quickly. Mm -hmm. So the convenience and the ability to access competitive terms is what's new to the banks. And in part, this is being unlocked by the data that the banks have been sitting on traditionally that is now much more generally available in the market. Yeah, I mean, this is the the foundation and underpinning of open banking in general. That's why the OCMA did it. So, uh, yeah, 
amazing to hear that there are people out there genuinely altering the models and trying to provide something unique for consumers. You talked about a couple of other SME financing propositions. Who would you consider your competitors at Funding Exchange? So it's interesting. We recently were with a large commercial bank and we discussed how we actually work and what we're doing. And they said, there's nobody else out there who's trying to do what you're doing. I think the reason they were saying that we really don't have a competitor, because on one hand, yes, we are a mediation service, but we're not a broker. We're so clearly not a broker because we do actively not take the highest commission rates available, but actually have agreed to have a common set of economics across all of our lenders. So we're not optimizing our short-term economics. We're actually looking to provide a service that is universally accepted. So if you think about what we're doing in terms of the data, not just the commercial model, but also the data analytics, we're probably much more akin to a credit reference agency that is able to direct a customer into the right route for them, giving them visibility of all of the solutions available. So in a way, we're definitely not a broker. But on the other hand, our economics are very different from credit reference agencies that would use data analytics. And the reason our commercials have to be quite different is actually because the credit reference agencies, because of the small size of the SME market, haven't been able to monetize the value that they're creating in this space. We're almost taking the best from two different worlds, the mediation model giving access to the best funding solutions, but using data analytics that credit reference agencies are using. That's a great answer. It's also the ultimate sales answer. We have no competitors. I love it. It's perfect. Coming to a topic that our, our listeners really like to hear about, in a relatively short time, you've come an awfully long way and you've covered some incredible milestones. What are the three or four biggest learnings you've had as an entrepreneur? And I know that you know, you've been in small businesses for a long time, but particularly with funding exchange, what's the advice that you'd pass on to any of our listeners that might want to embark on this kind of journey themselves? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. It's a tough one. So we've gone the hard route, and I think that is the way to do it. The hard route for us was we had a very clear vision of what we wanted to do. And we've been really true to this vision, even though in the short term, this has cost us quite dearly in terms of how much progress we can make. And what I mean by this is we set out to build a digital model that is always impartial, always treats the customer fairly. It's as simple as that. And we've made choices around who we partner with, who we take money from as investors, We've made choices around how we build our technology that have not maximized the short-term return, but have actually led to its realizing the vision that we had for the business. So as a result, what has happened, and this is probably why I'm quite proud of what we're doing, I think we have built a model that's internally really consistent. Mm -hmm. But the trade-offs we've taken is we didn't take money that was available to us because we felt it was going to make us less unbiased. We, in some cases, haven't won partnerships because some partners actually do still want to extract as much monetary value as possible out of small businesses. In those cases, we are not the right partner. I'm not going to ask you who they are, but I desperately (laughs) want to know. And look, there are different types of partners you can work with. There are those that have a strong brand 
that will protect their own brand and their core business and will work with us because we can help them actually reinforce their own brand and their core business. So we work very well with different price comparison websites that are very protective of their brand. We work very well with people like Sage, who have a very strong accounting solution and would never want to be diluting their own brand by selling expensive finance to their own customers. Yeah. So you can see how there's a there's a strong alignment between what we want to do and the partners we choose to work with. However, there are partners who want to maximize auxiliary revenues that may not choose us. So yes, the biggest thing is if you have a vision, you got to be true to it. And it's almost if you put one drop of dilution into it, your entire vision gets a bit... Mm. So take the hard route if you have a strong vision. It's probably learning one. The second is you can't do it on your own. Build a strong team around you. And what's interesting about that is I think you need different people for different stages of your journey. And I had a fantastic team at the very beginning who got us going in the most effective way possible. And I will be forever grateful to what they've done for us and how they've helped us get moving. But they weren't necessarily the ones who would help us build a really solid FCA regulated, HMT designated business that that is as solid and as operationally mm -hmm. efficient as mm -hmm. what we need to be today. Yeah. So different stages of growth, different requirements. Yeah. yeah. And so we've managed with just going sort of through the second transition as we're reaching different milestones. And it's it's important to recognize that people have different capabilities and will be incredibly helpful at different stages of the growth. That's awesome. And let me play them back to you. Sharpen your pencils, listeners. Number one, stay true to your vision and make choices that steer you in that direction. And, and I love that phrase, you know, one drop can dilute it all, which actually was going to lead me to my next question, which was about talent. And you kind of answered that in itself a little bit. Point two was you can't do it all on your own, build a strong team. But bear in mind that different phases require different types of people and different skill sets and different experience. On the talent theme, it's a personal passion of mine. How are you finding your talent? You know, many people default, and I've seen it all too often, to people they know. But there's such a deep talent pool out there, and it's only ever getting bigger and more exciting every day. So how are you doing it? It's a really good question. On one hand, the senior team has always built itself. And in part because we have such a strong vision for what we want to do and how we want to disrupt the sector that we're operating in. I've never had to recruit. I've actually always had people come to me for the senior team which I think has been absolutely amazing, but they haven't necessarily been long-term relationships. They have been in one case, one really instrumental person who joined us for the very early stage of the journey was working for a lender and heard about what we were building and literally called me up two days later and actually said, I love what you're doing. What do I need to do to get a job? If you can inspire people who want to join the journey, that's always been my recipe for finding the best talent. The greatest challenge we have on talent, though, is tech. And it is fundamentally an issue right now in terms of building a business in London to get good tech. And we have a real challenge where particularly given the shortage of tech talent, as everyone is hiring and paying huge amounts mm -hmm. of money, finding permanent employees. So the over-reliance on contractors, in my mind, is one of the biggest risks that we currently have. So I wish I had a recipe as to how to solve the tech challenge, but I feel like there are many people in our board who are actually 
having a committed tech team would make me feel much stronger about the position that we're in. And we are looking now at actually offshore resources just to give us this little bit more stability. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I'm fiercely patriotic, so I probably shouldn't ask the direct question. <laughs> but what are some of the regions perhaps that you're looking at for <clears throat> tech talent? So my CTO has a house in Portugal. <laughs> Should I say more? <laughs> so yes, yeah. Portugal is one of the areas we're looking at. We also have good experience with people in Bulgaria. So I guess we're following sort of where we have known relationships rather than launching ourselves into the unknown. That's very good of your CTO to give his house as your new Portugal HQ. <laughs> that was a win. I, I have I have suggested that clearly the next team offsite is going to be in Portugal if we actually put our development team into Portugal. So Portugal has a special place in my heart. My wife and I got married there and oh, they have a family home there. So we spend a lot of time there. I, yeah, big advocate for Portugal and actually some great talent there. I've spent some good time in Lisbon at various conferences and it always amazes me how many Portuguese people are actually there, which is a good sign. You mentioned earlier funding and that you didn't take some funding from certain people. A super difficult decision to make and, and a hugely admirable one because a lot of people you know, who find fundraising hard, everyone finds fundraising hard, just take the capital that's available. Whatever's on the table will do. It, I think testament to your proposition congratulations and if you have the freedom to not take it amazing who have you taken funding from how much have you raised and how much do you think you'll need to raise in the future all very direct questions so answer <laughs> what you like and what you're doing we've raised about three and a half million to date this is a good mix of angels large angels Typically, individuals who have a deep interest in our space, so from former CEO of Citibank in Europe to actually the chairman of American Express's international operations. So these are all people who understand the SME space incredibly well. In addition to the angels, we did close our first institutional round in 2017. And we are delighted to have brought uh, Calibrate on board, which is a renowned fintech investor here in, in London. We are actually about to launch our next round. Having delivered on the milestones that we are hoping to achieve in terms of just scaling the business and building out the technology, we're now raising a significant amount from institutional investors to actually deliver microservices to some of our partners. Mm. And what we found is that partners like Sage, but also some of the large banks, recognize that the decisioning technology we have actually starts addressing some of the underlying problems they have. And so we have seen that there's significant demand to deliver what we call credit as a service, where we help our partners automate some of the decisioning and use some of the intelligence that we've built up in our platform to create more transparency and more digital processes on the end. Okay. I'm bound by similar rules that I'm sure you are by the regulator, so I won't ask too many more questions on that stuff. I'm going to get towards the end of the podcast. Firstly, let me just say how inspiring it's been hearing your story. What you have built is truly impressive. And I say that to a lot of people, and I only ever say it when I mean it, but what I really like about this story in particular is how true to your vision you've stayed. And there aren't that many people, I think, that start with a core vision and stay true to exactly that at the beginning. And I think that shows A, real potential for the future of the business, but B, probably a very unique DNA and culture within the firm. So, yeah, super refreshing hearing that. The question I'd like to ask now is, 
you've had, I'm sure, lots of important role models. I'm sure, in fact, you probably are a role model and a mentor to many people as well. Who have been some of the people you've really looked up to in your career? It's a good question. I tend to look up to people who are very different from the way I am, because I, I do feel that you can learn most from those who have other capabilities, other experiences, rather than those who share your own DNA. There's particularly, I've recently relinquished my chairwoman role of the board and have asked a mentor who I've worked with for more than 10 years to actually assume the chairmanship role. This is John Ott, who's senior partner within Bain's financial services practice, currently based in China, actually. And I think I've always found it John challenges me in a way, it makes me feel very uncomfortable because he asks me questions that I haven't yet considered. And I found he is, he's, he's this little voice in my, I do like working with people where I can almost add their little voice to my brain. And I ask them, what would John say? What would Michael say? It gives me a different perspective on a problem. So John is a really good example of those people who just have a different way of looking at life and business. And those are the people that I look up to and I want to be associated with and work with. Also the sign of an awesome consultant asking you the <laughs> The, the tough questions that, that cause you to question everything that you're doing. Great. <laughs> okay. Well, firstly, thank you. Real pleasure having you in here. And I hope that we spend much more time together. And I know that my team have thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you and your team as well. So thanks for coming in and looking forward to the future. Well, thanks, Sam. It's been really kind having me here. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.